Well, last week we, we began this little epistle, the second epistle by the Apostle Peter. And we talked about um, the, the fact that this theme of this epistle really is enduring to the end. It's this idea of Peter at the end of his life. It kind of parallels what we see in 2 Timothy when Paul writes to Timothy at the end of his life. And kind of wanting to give his, his swan song. Here's what I want you to remember about me. Here's what I want you to remember about the faith. And so Peter, at the end of his life, he's wanting to talk about these things. And if you remember from 1 Peter, when, uh, when Adam taught us through 1 Peter, how the whole theme of 1 Peter was the reality of suffering in the believer's lives and just how God wants to, to use that suffering to make us like Jesus. And so we, we talked about last week how um, 1 Peter talks about how there's going to be suffering that comes from without, persecution, uh, that, that we're going to be marginalized in, in our societies, in our cultures because of the gospel, but that we are to love from the margins. We're to, to still love people and share the gospel from that way. Whereas 2 Peter really is talking more about uh, suffering from within or, or conflict or challenges from within because he begins to deal with the fact of, of how false teachers kind of come up among us. And this is a, something that the church has always had to deal with. The church has always had to deal with this reality of people for a variety of different reasons who come into the church and want to change the gospel. They want to manipulate it. They want to twist it. They want it to mean something else that it means. Often it, it, it comes in the form of, okay, you need to believe in Jesus and you need to do something else. So it's Jesus plus something else. Or it comes in the form of, well, you need to believe in Jesus and don't worry about all this repentance stuff and changing your life because at the end of the day, we're all saved by grace anyway. So it would be Jesus minus repentance. And both of those mindsets are wrong. Both of those views are wrong. And they really do great damage to our faith and they really undermine the gospel. And so Peter in the second epistle is going to deal with these issues. He's going to deal with how we stand strong. How do we endure to the end knowing that there are uh, people going to be people in our midst who want to promote false gospels, want to promote wrong ideas about God and how He saves us. Now, what we talked about last week specifically in the first kind of introductory verses was just this reality that the first thing that we need if we're going to endure at the end is, is we need to know Jesus. We need to remember that, that what God has saved us to is this relationship. We talked about that Greek word epigenosis and how that's used over and over again into Peter. And how, how there's this reality that, that God wants us to be in a real relationship with Him. It's, it's everything that we need to discern about whether or not that we're being taught something falsely or wrongly is going to be found in relating to the God of the Bible and having a, a real relationship with the God of the Bible. And we pick it up in verse 5, and because we have this relationship, Peter says, therefore, there's, there's something that you need to do. This is how you need to respond. He says, but also for this very reason giving all diligence, add to your faith. Now, you might see that and think, well, isn't that what you just said? Didn't you just say it's Jesus plus something else? But it's important for us to understand that what Peter's talking about here is not talking about that you need Jesus plus something else to be saved. He's saying, here's how you grow in your relationship with God through Jesus. Here's how Jesus has, here's how you apply all that Jesus has supplied to you to your relationship with God. Here's how you utilize what God has for you. This is what we want to talk about. If we talked about last week about knowing Jesus, this week we want to talk about growing like Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that's one of the things that intrigues me most about the person 
of Jesus Christ. Is I, I have a firm conviction. I think it's very, very clear in Scripture. It's one of the things that, just, that, that um, uh, is clearest to me, you might say theologically, and that is that Jesus is God the Son. And because I see Him as deity, because I know that He is uh, the incarnate God, I sometimes forget that He was a man. He was 100% man. He was a real man. And I'm blown away by the fact that when I read things like in Luke chapter 2 where it says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with man and in favor with God. And I'm blown away by verses like it says in the book of Hebrews where it talks about that Jesus learned obedience to the things that He suffered. And I think, wow. You know, this idea that here's, here's God the Son who becomes man, and He lives a perfect, sinless life, but that doesn't mean that when He was born as a babe, there wasn't development that didn't take place. In other words, He, he came to this earth, he's, when He's incarnated, even as a, a, just a little embryo, a baby in Mary's womb, He's, he's fully God, clothed in embryo. <laughs> And yet he had growing to do. In other words, he had this position that was perfect with God, but he needed to grow into that. And in a very similar way, we are in that place. We we have a position with God in Christ. As we talked about last week, uh, based on what we read in in verse 1, it says talks about our like precious faith that is with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we talked about this reality that we have a right standing with God because of what Jesus did. So, so th- that righteousness then is something that God wants us to stand in, but it's also something He wants us to grow in. And that's what we really want to focus on today. We want to talk about growing like Jesus. So let's talk about the process of growth. Let's start with that. Peter says, for this very reason, given all diligence, add to your faith. The faith he's referring to is what we've just been saying it's this like precious faith that he talks about in chapter 1. It's this reality that, that we have been saved. We have been rendered innocent by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we have this perfect standing with God based on our faith in Jesus Christ, based on what He's provided for us. And so it's important that we recognize that the process of growth has to start was saving faith. You have to start being in a place where you already are in a right position with God. And this is really important because as we talk about a lot of practical things today, if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I need to kind of know this God and be right with this God, and you're thinking in your mind, okay, I have to do all these things to get myself in a right relationship with God, you're missing the point. In fact, that's really what legalism is. Legalism is you working for a relationship with God. Whereas what we're talking about is this working from a relationship with God. Legalism would be you working into a position with God, whereas righteousness is you working from a position with God. It's been given to you as a free gift. It's important that we recognize this. The process of growth, it begins with this saving faith. In fact, it's interesting when it says, add to your faith, it could be translated, supply your faith. And it's this idea that our faith is really, it's like a muscle. It's something that, that it's meant to be exercised. You're meant to use the saving faith that God graces you with. You're meant to exercise it. This is what Paul is getting at, what he says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It's not on the screen. But what he says is, um, i got to try to remember it. By, see, now you gotta, i got to prove that I have Scripture memorized. This is horrible. 
He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He doesn't say work up your salvation. Try to feel it. He says work it out. Know that you have this. You've been given this salvation. Exercise it. Exercise it. That's the idea here in this section. Add to your faith. Exercise your faith in these ways. Now, he starts talking about some of these characteristics, okay? Some of these these things that we need to recognize, okay? So the first process of growth is saving, is, is understanding we have saving faith. But the second process of our growth is what I'll call diligent cooperation. Diligent cooperation. Notice he says, with all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now, this word virtue, we talked about it last week. It means moral excellence. Now, don't think, when I say moral excellence, don't think in your mind moral superiority. That's what the world looks at us as Christians. Oh, you guys think you're so morally superior. And that's not how we should think. We should not look at ourselves as morally superior. We know that we're sinners like anybody else, saved by grace. But we should be pursuing a moral excellence. As we mentioned last week about Jesus in Mark 7.37, how it talks about Him, He did all things well. And we should be pursuing that same sort of moral excellence where we want to, to the way we treat people and the way we, we, we live our lives is a way that, that, that shows this kind of moral excellence, that we esteem others as better than ourselves, that we would want to run from things that we know God says are wrong. But he also says, add to your virtue or add to your moral excellence. He says, add to that knowledge. Now, by knowledge here, I would define knowledge here. It's, it's, it's related to the word epigenosis. It's the root of that. It's gnosis or gnosis. And it's this idea of an accurate personal understanding. So it's a knowledge. It is, it is kind of grasping information, but it's a personally accessed knowledge. It's, it's kind of like what the Proverbs are getting at in Proverbs 9.20 when it says, or 9.10 when it talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's this idea that we, we understand what God wants for us or what he, he wants, uh, what he wants from us, what He wants for us as we understand who He is. Now, how do we understand who God is? We only understand who God is by what He says about Himself and His Word. I mean, this really should be common sense to us. This really should be second nature to us for those of us who are Jesus followers. Because here's a reality. Uh, even when it comes to ourselves as persons, if, if you want to know me, okay, you, you can make certain observations about me. Uh, you, you can notice, okay, I, I, I'm not from Norfolk. You can tell it by my accent. Uh, you know I'm follically impaired. Um, uh, you can tell, you might know I like to eat. You know, you might make certain sort of guesses. I don't like to dress up. You know, you can make guesses about me. Uh, but you, you're only really going to know about me if I disclosed myself to you. You'd have to ask questions. I have to disclose myself to you. Well, we can observe God, can we? But what we can observe is what he has disclosed about himself in his word. This is what's really important when we talk about uh, adding to your moral excellence knowledge, that what we're talking about is making sure that we do have an accurate personal understanding of who God is, and we can only know that from his word. This is why we take so much time to study his word with some precision and with some effort, because we really want to know what has God said about himself. We want to have that information correct. He says, then listen. He says, add to that knowledge, self-control. This is like the idea of like an athletic self-discipline. And, and, and it's funny because often like Paul, especially the Apostle Paul, will use 
athletic metaphors, which I know a lot of people hate sports metaphors, but I like them. Because I like them because, you know, one of the things that, that I have realized in, in playing a bit of sport when I was younger is you do realize the value of discipline from sport. You do realize that, look, if you want to excel, if you want to do better, you're going to have to say no to yourself. You're going to have to say no to something so you can say yes to something else. That's the way it works, you know. It's interesting because the author of Hebrews talks about let's run the race that is before us with endurance, looking unto Jesus. And he talks about laying aside every weight and every sin that hinders us. What's the difference between a weight and a sin? A sin are those things that God says we shouldn't do, those things where God says that we should do that we're not. That's sin. But a weight or maybe those freedom issues, maybe that we, you know, there's no, they're not forbidden, but they weigh us down. It's kind of like, you know, a couple of you guys ran the London Marathon recently, and there is no, as far as I know, there's no rule in the London Marathon that says you can't carry a sandwich with you on the way. You could probably have a few subways with you, you know, a couple footlongs, you know. You could have those sandwiches, but it would weigh you down. You would probably be, yeah, feeding the birds if you get my drift after a few miles running eating that sandwich. I mean, it's just not going to do you any good. And so the idea of self-discipline or self-control is this idea of casting aside those things that are going to hold you back, letting those things be put aside. He says, add to self-control, perseverance. Now, perseverance, one uh, Bible teacher described perseverance as long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction, perseverance. It's this idea that we, we are going to keep keeping on. We're going to just go forward. Now, let me be clear about something. I don't believe that God desires us to live a monotonous Christian life. I don't believe God desires us to just be sort of, okay, I have my religious duties and I'm ticking off my boxes. That's not what God's calling us to, okay? But there is something to this idea of doing the same thing over and over again for the purpose of growing in relationship with Him drawing close to Him. I, I can say this uh, with a clear conviction. I've been a Christian since 1987. Was that 27 years, something like that? been a Christian for 27 years, and I can tell you the seasons of my Christian faith when I've been most disciplined have been the most fruitful. And when I mean my fruitful, I mean my intimacy with God, my enjoyment, my joy, my peace, my, my ability to minister to others. There's a direct correlation between that and me as it says here, giving all diligence, do the things that God would call me to do. Again, I'm not doing those things, I'm not doing those things to make myself saved or to even keep a position with God. I do those things, when I do those things from a position with God, there's a growth that happens, there's a fruitfulness that happens. You know, diligence is something that we, we tend to sort of, I think, give a head nod to. You know, I, I know a lot of you guys here very personally, and I'm I'm very thankful to say uh, many of you, if not most of you that I know, work really hard. I mean, I'm so blessed by those of you who do kids' work and serve at the church. I've seen so many of you guys work really hard. Sometimes we have to tell you guys, you can't serve anymore. You've, you're already doing enough ministry, and we have to t pull you back. And it really is a blessing to me. I know a lot of you guys work hard out there at your jobs, and that's a good witness. It's great for us to be diligent. But let's, let's look really quickly at what the proverb says about diligence. Just some, some verses that should come up on the screen. Okay, there it goes. Some things to think about diligence. Proverbs 12, 27 says, The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting. If you don't roast food in that day, it's going to go off, right? But diligence, notice, diligence is a man's precious possession. 
The idea there is it's not just good that you can hunt. What are you doing with the things that you've caught? Are you being diligent about utilizing what you have? Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the lazy man desires, he wants good things, but what does he have? Nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Proverbs 21, 25, I like the way the NLT paraphrases this, despite their desires, in other words, I really want to do well, the lazy will come to ruin. Why? For their hands refuse to work. And then this is one of my favorites, Proverbs 26, 13. This is the ultimate of all excuses, right? The lazy man says, there's a lion in the streets. A fierce lion is in the streets. I can't do that. I might die. Hey, I say this, but it's amazing how many people will say, oh, you know, I know I should spend time with God alone. I should be in the Word. I should make church more of a priority. I know, I know, but I just, I just can't. Are you going to die if you walk through the door? Is there a lion that's going to consume you? And we're just making excuses. And it's interesting because often some of those same people know how to be diligent in other areas. They want a job promotion, man, they'll work it. They want to get a new, uh, they, they want to get some extra cash, they'll find a second job. But you, you, you encourage them that, look, the Lord, the Lord creator of the universe has died so you can have a relationship with Him, so you should invest in that relationship more so than you would probably in any other relationship, and that means effort. And they go, oh. Or they say, oh, that's legalism, bro. No, it's not. It's not. This is what God wants us for us to grow. The process of growth, yes, it starts with our saving faith, our position that's been given to us in Christ, but it grows, it, it, it develops through a diligent cooperation. A diligent cooperation. But not just that, also, it has to do with spiritual priorities. Look at what it says in verse 6. It says, to, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 6, it says, to perseverance, what do you add? Godliness. Now, godliness is the idea of I want to do what's pleasing to God. That's what godliness is. Godliness is, a, is really a mindset that says, I want to be pleasing to God with what I do. That's godliness, okay? You're pursuing the pleasure of God by what you do. Now, have you ever met somebody that you thought, man, that guy just really seems, that woman just really seems to want to please God in all that she does. And you're just kind of like, that's a really just a godly person. If you met someone like that, that you really can look at and you think, they're just really a godly person. Do you, ever, do you ever have that thought of, man, they're just really godly and they seem to stand apart from other believers? You ever wondered how wrong that actually is? Not that they're wrong, but how wrong that we're not all that way. <laughs> no, seriously. We meet people that are really godly. They just seem to really want to please God. Is that not normal Christianity? Look what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Is that up there? Yes. It says, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, which is our default position, but for him who died for them and rose again. Normal Christianity is us saying, I'm living for Jesus because he died for me. That's normal Christianity. That's godliness. It's about spiritual priority. He says, notice to godliness, add brotherly kindness. Now, this is this word that, uh, where we get the, the name Philadelphia, that famous U.S. city that has great cheesesteak sandwiches. Um, brotherly kindness, Philadelphia. It's important that we recognize this because God is calling us as believers. This is part of our spiritual priority. Listen, is that our relationships with other believers would be so close that we feel what they feel. That's what's behind the idea of brotherly kindness, is that we feel what they feel. 
The Bible says in the book of Romans, this is going to be part of the text we look at at a family camp, Romans chapter 12, verses 15 and 16 says, Weep or rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. In other words, that when we come together, whether it's a Sunday morning or a house group or a prayer meeting, that we are sensitive to where the other, the other one another are. And we weep with the people that are weeping and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. It doesn't mean we let, we let one person dictate the emotion of all the meeting. No, it means that we are ministering sensitively to one another, that we care about how people are feeling. So that we look at someone, and I, and we, I might look at Pip and go, man, Pip, well done, I heard you did really well at, at school and you got some award or something. We can go, that's just amazing, well done, dude. And then I can maybe look at Stephen and say, Stephen, I heard it was a rough week for you. I'm sorry, bro, let's, let's pray into that. You know, I know that's difficult. I can do both at the same time. Why? Because by the power of the Spirit, I can set that spiritual priority where I want to pursue brotherly love or brotherly kindness. And he says, into brotherly kindness, love. Now, this word for love, of course, it's uh, uh, agape or agape. And it's, it's this love that, that is, it's a love that's based on the giver, not the receiver. That's what agape love is. So in other words, if I'm going to show you agape love, it doesn't matter if you reciprocate it, if you appreciate it, if you recognize it. I just need to give it to you. I just need to choose to give it to you. It's the love of God. Now we agape because God first agaped us. That's what the Bible says in 1 John 4, 19. We love God because He first loved us. And the whole text there on your screen is italicized. But if you were to look it up in your Bibles, probably in most of your English Bibles, you'd notice that the word God is italicized. Because what it says literally in the Greek is we love because He first loved us. In other words, it's not just love for God that comes from His first loving us. It's love for anyone that comes from His first loving us. That's what I mean by spiritual priorities. So this is the process of growth. We, we recognize we're in a position. Our, we, we have saving faith. Therefore, we're in a position of righteousness with God because of what Jesus did for us. We add to that or we supply that with or work that out with a diligent cooperation and spiritual priorities. If these things are not ours, we are not going to grow. Please, listen, let me encourage you guys. There is no substitute for these things. Don't think that you're going to become a, a good person or a righteous person without first God saving you. It's never going to happen. And don't think that once God has saved you, that you're going to grow in your faith unless you are diligent, unless you have the right spiritual priorities. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Now, that's the process of growth. Let's talk about the necessity of growth. Look at verse 8. For if these things are yours, these things that he's just listed, if these things are yours and abound. In other words, Peter's saying, look, I don't want you just to kind of go, well, I was once brotherly kind, you know, but this thing, this, you're growing in these things. If these things are abounding in you, look what he says, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge, here's this word again, epigenosis, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the point Peter's making here is that growth is the expectation of healthy relationship. It's what you expect to happen. Now, I don't know about the rest of you married people, but I know Sarah and I, when we got married, we expected that the longer we were married, the closer we'd be together. 
And we can both say by the grace of God, that's the case. Neither of us are perfect. We still drive each other nuts. Uh, but we definitely love each other more than we did 24 years ago when we first got together. That's the grace of God. That's our expectation. Our expectation is in the next 24 years we'll be even closer if the Lord should tarry that long. That's our expectation. It's normal. Uh, my expectation is that, that my relationship with my kids is not going to sour over the years. It's going to deepen. That I'm going to be more in awe of what they're becoming. And they're going to be thankful for me one day. <laughs> 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 Tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. Then I stop embarrassing them at church. That's when they'll be thankful. Now, healthy relationships, the expectation always should be growth. It always should be growth. This is what Jesus talks about in John chapter 15. If you abide in me, abiding talks of relationship. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. You will ask what you will, and it shall be done for you, and you shall bear much fruit. And that fruit brings glory to the Father, and that fruit brings joy to your life. That is the normal expectation of healthy relationship. See, when we talk about the necessity of growth, we talk about it's a, it's a, it's a necessity because it just should happen. It's natural for lack of a better term. It's what happens when we're abiding. Which means, listen, if we're not growing, we're not abiding. It means if we're not bearing fruit, the relationship isn't healthy. This is Peter's point. But also look what he says in verse 9. He says, For... He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. See, growth is the expectation of a healthy relationship, but failure to grow has consequences as well. Failure to grow, guys, it produces, according to Peter here, it produces blindness and forgetfulness. Short-sightedness is the idea that you can only see something that's kind of close up. You can't see the, you can't see the end game. You can't see what's going to happen in the long haul. Isn't that what seems to be happening in the church? Let's, let's be honest. Isn't this what's happening in the church in the West? Isn't most of the preaching and teaching that we hear, isn't most of the books that we see sold in Christendom today about the short game? I mean, have your best life now? It, it, it sees Jesus as a means to the end, the end being you being happy, you getting your life as good as it can possibly be. Don't, don't, don't make a mistake. You know, God is a, a God who blesses. He does great things. We, we expect to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Amen? We, we, God gives good gifts to His children. He's good. He's generous to us. But the problem is we can become short-sighted because we, we, we can think, okay, the thing is, it's not so much about me learning to have moral excellence or me learning to have the, uh, that, that self-discipline of a great athlete or me learning to you know, have um, you know, long obedience in the same direction or, or to really grow in, in my desire to please God or to show compassion to my brothers or to really love people. No, those aren't my goals. My goal is to be happy. But that's short-sightedness. 
And it's short-sightedness that Peter says, even to blindness. You know, I just want to, I want to sort of confess to you guys that um, that I, I've been in seasons in ministry where ministry is going really well, but I'm not really seeking the Lord. I'm not really diligently cooperating to grow in Him. And what ends up happening is, even though God is still gracious and faithful to use me and to do the work He wants to do, I can't even see what's happening. I find myself kind of people going, oh, isn't it great what God's doing in that person's life? Or isn't it amazing when you hear that person's testimony like, yeah, that's cool, that's great, yeah, praise God. But I'm thinking, maybe it's not really even real, maybe it's just coincidence. And I can't even see the work, uh, God's hand at work when it's right before my eyes. This is what happens. You see, it's, it's necessary that we grow because if we don't, we go blind. And we begin to forget. We begin to forget that what God's done for us is amazing. He's cleansed us from all our sins. In those seasons, you know what I've began to experience? Condemnation. Am I even a Christian? Has God actually saved me? Let's begin to forget that I've been cleansed from my old sins. You see, God calls us to grow. He calls us to move forward in our faith, to draw nearer to Him, to let Him by or cooperate with Him by His Spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus. And if we don't grow, we grow blind and forgetful. There's a consequence for it. Please don't think when God calls you to obedience, it's to take away your fun. He's calling you to obedience to bless you. He wants to bless you. He really does. He wants you to know Him better. He's not trying to rip you off. But we are blind to that when we walk in disobedience. So we've talked about the process of growth, the necessity of growth. Let's finish with the motivation for growth. Peter says in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling, your call and your election Sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. He says, make your calling and election sure. Now, what he's talking about here, when he talks about your call, he's not talking about like your call to ministry, like I'm called to pastor. That's not what he's referring to. He's talking about the fact that Jesus called you to follow him. So, so when you became a believer, whether it was like with your parents and or at a church service or at some crusade or whatever the case might be, and you knew you needed to believe in Jesus, that was Jesus calling you by His Holy Spirit through the, the ministry of His people to follow Him. That's the call. And you don't follow Jesus until He calls you. That's the way it works. When He speaks of election, He's talking about this fact that you are indeed one of God's chosen. You belong to Him. That's the idea. In the New, in the New Testament, election is always taught in the sense of you belonging to God, that He's picked you. So when He says, make your calling and election sure, He's not saying, 
work for that position. He's not even saying, prove to God that you belong to Him. What he's talking about here is this reality that growth, as you grow, okay, as you give, are even more diligent to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, I want to heed that call, I want to display that I do belong to Him, that as you do that, you are sure or have assurance that you belong to Him. Now, maybe, maybe be really clear about the difference between assurance of your salvation and security of your salvation. This is really important to understand. Your salvation is secure solely on the basis of what Christ has done. It's about what He's done, full stop. It's always and only about what He's done. That's what makes you secure. So your security as a believer, your security as a child of God, you might even say your identity as a child of God is only based on what Christ has done for you. But your assurance of that security has to do with your cooperation with Him, has to do with your fellowship with Him. I don't doubt that my kids, I don't think my kids, you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, if my kids have ever thought, am I really John Brown's child? I don't know if they've ever had that question, you know. Poor Bubba, he's got my nose, he can't deny me if he wants to. But they probably have wondered, does dad love me? Or are we okay? Especially if I tell them off. They probably wonder, what's going on? They feel that. Now, I tell them off because I love them, but sometimes it takes the restoration. Sometimes it takes the, have we worked through this? Are we actually walking together in this to know, yeah, everything's okay. <coughs> everything's all right. Again, the, the restoration doesn't make them my children. They're securely my kids, but assures them that the relationship is where it's supposed to be. Do you see the difference? So part of our motivation for growth, listen, is growth brings assurance. We go, yes, I'm the Lord's. God's doing something in me. He's changing me from inside out. I know He began a good work in me. And because He began a good work in me, I know from His promises, He will be faithful to complete it. I know that. But also, look what He says in verse 11. He says, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly. This is key abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is key because Peter's not saying, again, you're earning a way into God. That would totally go against all that he's been said before, all that he says in other epistles, all that the rest of the New Testament teaches. But he is wanting us to recognize that there is a level of reward that's different for every believer. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 says, 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3 says, if anyone's work, this is, this is Paul talking about judgment. Now, some commentators want to say this is Paul talking about somehow uh, a corporate judgment of the body of Christ and that we're not really going to be rewarded. I think the context is directly the opposite. But here's what he says. If anyone's, like any individual's, work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but notice, he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you understand? It seems to me pretty clear that what Paul's talking about there is, look, 
when judgment day happens for believers, the things that we have done, I would guess the things we've done in our own strength, the things we've done with, with selfish motives, the things we've done for our glory and not God's, poof, burned away. But the things that we've done by the power of God, for the glory of God, for those things, we are going to receive a reward. And that reward is meant to be a motivation. Now, this is important because I want to be clear about this. I don't want you to confuse the reward I'm referring to to your actual salvation. Okay, again, your security, your salvation, your relationship, your position is based solely on what Christ has done. But it is important that you recognize that not everyone's going to be rewarded the same. And please don't get in your mind right now, oh, John's going to get a great reward because he does all this preaching stuff. No. The people who get rewarded have, has nothing to do with the things that God's, the gifting that God's given them or the position that God's given them or, or the, the, the specific ministry God's called them to. It has fully to do with faithfulness. Have I done this for God's glory? Have I done this by God's power? So you stay-at-home moms who are going, I'm going to go crazy, God, there has to be more of my life than this. God says, great is your reward in heaven. Be faithful. And you guys that feel like you're in a, you you people that feel like you're in a dead-end job, this is going nowhere. I'm never going to make a decent living doing this. Greatest reward in heaven. God says, be faithful. Now, you might read this verse, and you might be tempted to think what I've heard a lot of people say, like, well, well, I'm so glad that I'm saved no matter what. Hey, as long as I get in, that's all I care about. In closing, I want you guys to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to close with Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about that day of judgment. He's talking about the reality that he is going to be the judge. Scripture is really clear about that. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Acts. He says that uh, God has appointed a day where he'll judge all men through Jesus Christ. He's proven this by raising Jesus from the dead. It's in Acts 17. And so Jesus is our judge. He's the one who judges all. And he tells this parable, the parable of the talents, Starting in verse 14, I want you to follow along with me as I read this. Jesus, Jesus, telling this parable, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents. That would be a measure of money. A talent's a measure of money. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Likewise, he who had received two talents gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents before them. And notice, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter to the joy of your Lord. He also had received two talents, came and said, Lord, uh, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His, 
uh, uh, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Do you understand what he's seen? Jesus is telling this parable ahead of time. Here's your reward. I'm going to say to you, great, our good and faithful servants, I'm going to let you make be ruler over many, though you've been faithful and few. But verse 24 says, Then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I know that you have been a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, have what is yours. Here's your talent back, Lord. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Notice what he says. Notice, for to everyone who has more will be given and he will have abundance, but him who does not have even what he has will be taken away. And cast, notice, cast the unprofitable servant into utter darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I read that parable, and I think there's no room to look at 1 Corinthians 3 and say, as long as I get in, it doesn't matter. That is the mindset of a wicked and lazy servant. Now, my strong conviction is that once you've received saving faith, once you've been born again of God's Spirit, you can never become unborn again. You belong to God forever. That's my conviction. But that doesn't mean that you can go, oh, yeah, I'm I'm saved. I said the prayer, no big deal. God gives you faith to use it, and you either use it or you lose it. In the sense that, listen, if God has is God's working in you by His grace to say you need to put your faith in Jesus and you're not responding to Him, even what you have will be taken from you. Again, this is not about you trying to prove that you belong to God. This is about you recognizing what God has given you in this relationship. It's about saying, Lord, you saved me so I could grow. You brought me into a relationship so I I can grow. Lord, I want to grow. I want to grow. Hey, maybe you, you are only one of those one-talent kind of people. Don't bury it. Say, Lord, I want to grow. I want to know you better. I want to add to my faith virtue and self-discipline and brotherly kindness and love. I want to grow, Lord. God wants to bless you. He wants to grow you.